and welcome to Insight. My name is Ali and joining me as always is Charlie. How are you today, Charlie? I'm great. How are you? I'm great too. You guys who don't know, we've actually recorded two episodes today, so I know exactly how Charlie is, but in the interest of being friendly, I I asked again. (laughs) Yeah, Charlie's starting to get a little hungry at this point. (laughs) Okay, so today's topic is one that I've been interested in since the trial in 2003. I was obsessed with it before it was mentioned on Serial and before I even knew what a podcast was. What case am I talking about? The murder of Greg Whitman and the subsequent conviction of his brother, Zach, for his murder. The Whitmans live in New Freedom, Pennsylvania. Sue and Ron Whitman have two sons, Greg, who was 13 at the time of the crime, and Zach, who was 15. By all accounts, both brothers were extremely close. Earlier in the fall of that year, Zach had planned and built Greg a soccer net as a surprise. Sue and Ron report that the boys were each other's best friend. On October 2nd, 1998, Zach was unwell with a stomachache, so he stayed home from school for the day. Ron was away on business in Chicago, Sue went to work, and Greg went to school as usual. In the afternoon, at about 3.05pm, Greg gets off the school bus and goes on the short five-minute walk to his house. We know it's only about five minutes, as several children who got off the bus with Greg later testify that that's when Greg would have arrived home. No one saw anything unusual. Zach states that at this time, he was upstairs, sleeping in his parents' bedroom. He leaves a key in the storm door for Greg, so he can let himself in, and Zach didn't have to wake up. So Greg gets home at about 3.10 and goes inside. According to the evidence provided at trial, Greg only makes it into the foyer of the home before he is assaulted. He is brutally attacked with a knife and stabbed approximately 90 times. Some of these are defensive wounds to both hands, but most would be in the neck and head area. This resulted in a massive injury to the neck and windpipe, causing Greg to lose massive amounts of blood. According to the autopsy report, Greg would have died very quickly. It is important to note that after the injury to his windpipe, Greg would have lost consciousness, meaning he couldn't get up, run or scream. Now at about 3.09pm, Greg's girlfriend Erin calls to talk to Greg. An identified person answers the downstairs phone and the call is immediately disconnected without a word. Erin waits for a few minutes and then at about 315 She calls back and Zach answers the upstairs phone and tells Erin that Greg isn't home yet. She knows which phones these are because I guess one's a flip phone and they sound different when they hang up because that was something that struck me as odd when she seemed to know which phones were so, but it was that they had a different sound when they were hung up. Apparently the downstairs phone did a strange click when it hung up. Right, because it like flipped close and you could hear that hinge when it when someone hung up. Exactly. And whether this call woke up Zach or not is unknown, and all of this would have been happening while Greg was being attacked. Zach then reports that he hears what sounds like a scuffle downstairs. He just thinks that Greg has brought a friend home from school and they are wrestling, or they use the word roughhousing. He goes downstairs to say hello and he sees Greg's school bag by the door, And I'd also imagine there would have been a fair amount of blood there as well. He can't see Greg, so he goes looking for him and finds Greg lying against the washing machine in the laundry. 
There's also a baby safety gate in the laundry door frame for the family dogs, but we'll come back to the safety gate a bit later. And there's something that Erin said, the only odd thing she noticed about one of the phone call is that she never heard the dogs barking and she normally would hear them barking when she called. I'm assuming she means like the ringing sets them off barking and then they calm down after it calms down. That makes sense. But that she did not hear the dogs. I couldn't see anywhere that when the police arrived, whether the dogs were inside or outside. I could assume they were inside dogs because of the safety gate, but I didn't see if they were inside or outside at that time. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I didn't see anything about the dogs in that regard. All I, yeah, the only thing about the dogs was that Aaron did not hear them barking. Yeah. So seeing that Greg had been injured, Zach calls 911 at 3.17. So all of this has happened in about seven minutes. The dispatcher reports that Zach sounds frantic on the phone. When told that Greg is not breathing, the dispatcher orders Zach to put Greg on his back in order to revive him. Zach has to be asked this several times before he attempts to do so, only to realise that Greg's head is almost decapitated. If you watch the short documentary on Ron and Sue Whitman online, you can listen to part of the 911 call, and you can hear Zach's tone during the phone call escalating in anxiety and hysteria, which I guess is understandably so if you've found your brother in this state. He definitely is distressed, he's anxious, he's panicking, he asks about calling his mom. I mean, he's reacting the way you would expect a 15-year-old to react to finding his brother this way. Yeah, he asked to call his mother repeatedly, and because the dispatcher wants him to stay on the line, he doesn't get that opportunity. When the police get there, that's pretty much the, what he's saying to them too. I need to call my mom, I need to call my yeah, mom. That's it. So Zach stays on the phone with 911 until the police and EMS arrive, which is about 3.25. The police obviously start questioning Zach to try and find out what's going on. They ask, you know, the basic questions of, did you see anyone? Did you hear anything? And Zach, as we've said, is in an absolute mess of an emotional state at this point. He's screaming frantically, jumping up and down and asking to call his mum. The police really couldn't get any information out of him at this point, so Sue is then contacted and told to meet Zach at the hospital. But she, of course, wants to see Greg, but they won't let her see him because the house is a crime scene. So they take Zach to hospital because at this stage they can't get any information out of him. He's covered in blood. They don't know if he's been injured because they don't know what's happened. On the trip to the hospital, the EMS cleans up Zach's hands using a towel. The EMS, the EMT does see a cut on Zach's hand. They ask him where did it come from and he says that he had done it playing with the family dogs. So they they put the bloody towel that's used to clean his hands in a bag along with Zach's sweatshirt and his socks. Okay, so that's the scene up to this point. Now, as I said, the house is now a crime scene and the police start looking to try and work out what happened. They examine the placement of the body, follow the trail of blood throughout the house using luminol. Now, for those who don't know, luminol is a chemical that shows the presence of blood when it is sprayed on it, even after the blood has been cleaned. They find bloody footprints going outside of the house to the backyard and then entering the house again, which you assume wouldn't be in that direction if the assailant was trying to leave the scene of the crime. Right, you would just see footprints out. Exactly. Especially bloody ones. It means 
the murder's over and he's taking off. Instead, he takes off and then turns around and comes back. Comes back. I I did read that the person using the luminol was new to yes. forensics and that there were blank spots and things weren't... But, I mean, luminol's not... I don't know. It's not rocket science. You know, and I know luminol will light up for things that are not blood. So you'll hear a lot of people kind of try to contradict it based on the forensic and the the crime scene analysis because of the forensic analysis's status as a newbie in the field. So I just want to throw that out there. Luminol also reacts to things like pool chemicals. And we will get to that in a minute. But in the backyard, they have a hot tub where... In the area in the backyard where the hot tub is, there is earth that's obviously been disturbed, like dirt has been dug up and replaced recently. This mound, I guess you can call it, wasn't all that far away from the house, probably less than 25 to 30 feet. Yeah, it really was not far. No, it wasn't, just straight out the back door. So, of course, the police dig it back up and they find a scrunched up glove and a folding penknife, which is wrapped up in the glove. Both these items have blood on them. The blood is later tested and it matches Greg's. So we know for sure that who killed Greg did it most likely using the knife and most likely wearing the glove. Yeah, and these gloves were soccer gloves. Yes. And Greg did play soccer. Yes. So as, as we mentioned, the mound was next to the hot tub and the hot tub would have had chemicals and these chemicals do react with luminol. However... They did the, the footprints did go towards that, and that's how they found the mound to begin with. So you would assume there was blood. This knife, I, I know you looked up pictures of it. Yes. It's mostly plastic with a metal blade. And I looked at it, and I just cannot believe that it stood up to 100 stabs and cuts. But... It had his blood on it, and why else would you bury it unless it had something to do with the crime? So, and it also sounds like everyone who examined the knife and the wounds say it's the knife. It's only the people who just look at the knife like me who start going, wait a second. So, I'm just saying I'm surprised that this knife could have withstood that kind of use. Yeah, there is a lot of controversy surrounding the knife. But it wasn't like Greg was just stabbed once in the neck, you know, like just one slash across. It was more like 60 to 70 stab wounds to the neck and head area. And if you do that enough times with enough force, you're going to cause damage regardless of what you use. And if you watch a knife expert on YouTube, there is a video where this knife expert does run through the knife and what had happened. And he says, look, there's no way that it could almost decapitate someone. And that had me convinced when I watched it. I'm like, that's it. That's the smoking gun that can get Zach off. But, yeah, there's just no other way based on the evidence. The knife is an exact match to everything. There is no point arguing the knife wasn't used because we know it did. It matches the the, the cuts to Zach's, to, to, sorry, Greg's neck. It matches the holes in Greg's shirt. Right. Okay, so... The person who murdered Greg left the house, buried these items, and then returned to the house according to the footprints. The notes from the police file state that these footprints had no recognisable tread, meaning the assailant wasn't wearing shoes at the time of the crime. But there also was no toe impressions, meaning the assailant couldn't have been 
barefoot, sort of like if you were wearing socks. That's the most likely theory from the footprints created using the luminol. And we have to mention that Zach was wearing socks when the police arrived. And I, just to, with the socks, um, I didn't see any grass stains on the socks. No. That you would have expected if someone ran out in a yard. No. There's no reports of there being grass stains when you read through all the evidence online. The forensic evidence will put forth at trial showing that Zach's socks had blood on the bottoms. However, the entire bottoms weren't covered. There are also droplets or splatters of blood on top of the socks. Which he did move his brother's body under the direction of 911. Correct. Which could account for light spatter. That's right. That's right. So with the, with this small knife and with the defensive wounds on Greg, you would assume that the assailant would have also been injured. So remember what I said earlier about the EMT finding a small cut on Zach's hand? That rings alarm bells for me. I know I, I know that Zach says that he done that playing with his dogs, but it does look a bit suspicious to me. And I read that it lines up with a cut that's in the gloves. Exactly. That makes it especially suspicious to me. I have kids, you have kids, they always have cuts somewhere and nobody knows how they got them. But, I mean, if they have it lined up with a glove, that's really suspicious. And soccer gloves are quite sturdy too. It's not like it was like a plastic glove. They are quite reinforced. So to have it match up, it seems a bit funny to me. The defence also likes to mention that the path taken was actually a longer route than through the house than necessary. There is a quicker way to get out to the back door. From the laundry room, there's a door that goes straight out that path. Instead, the person went all the way through the house. You, you didn't need to walk through the house. But the problem I have with that, if you look at the crime scene photos, Greg's body would have been lying in the direction of where the laundry door opened. So that would have hampered any escape. Even if they could have gotten past the body, why would you open a door for possible neighbours in their backyard to look in and see the body? Exactly. I mean, opening the laundry room door may have gotten you outside faster, but it seems like the worst idea possible. So let's talk about what Zach was wearing. I read that the pants didn't have dirt marks on the knees, which is what you would expect if he was down burying the knife and glove. Yeah, that was actually um, Henry Lee famed forensic criminologist that was in his report he noted that to bury the evidence he likely would have knelt in dirt and there was nothing on his knees there was dirt on his clothes but there wasn't even enough to run a soil test no there's dirt in the left leg and on the right hip but we don't know if these are old marks or how they got there he lived in the house so of course there's a chance that dirt could have got on them from playing in the backyard the day before for example and also, the, as you said, the, the marks are in an odd place. If, if you're kneeling down, burying the stuff for the dirt, it needs to be on the knees. So what, was he lying on his side doing it? Right, yeah, that makes no sense. I mean, I could imagine if he squatted instead of knelt or just bent yeah. over. But the fact that he had dirt in weird places doesn't make a lot of sense. Exactly. There's also blood on Zach's sweatshirt. I don't have as much issue with this either. We know from the 911 call that Zach moved Greg's body, so of course he's going to get some blood on him. And Greg hadn't been dead for very long, so any movement may have caused a gush of blood to come out of the wound. These pictures of the clothing, except for the pants, are online, 
And really, that sweatshirt did not have as much blood as I expected to see, even for someone who just moved the body. Like, I mean, I really would have expected there to be more, even just from that. I mean, this is horrible, but I've had more blood come out of a paper cut than what was on his sweatshirt, really. Like, it, it was barely anything on there. No. Okay, so do you want to talk about the safety gate and the laundry door frame now? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, because we have one of these gates on our staircase, and it really doesn't take much to knock them down. No, they're just the pressure-mounted ones. Yeah, because I have a 16-month-old, and he knows that if he shakes it hard enough, it's going to fall down. After reading everything in the crime scene, and I'm going to jump ahead here, but I find that the safety gate is a quite an interesting clue of the crime scene. How did the murderer get Greg over the safety gate? If we're looking at the quickest method possible... The first scenario would be that Greg was attacked and died in the foyer. Then the assailant, did the assailant lift Greg over the safety gate? And then climb over it themselves as well. I mean, I, I'm i not very tall and I knock them over with my back foot climbing over all the time. But when you come in the house, there's the front door and the foyer. The laundry room's actually just a straight shot back. So from exactly. the front door, you can see the baby gate and the stairs are on your right And then there's a table kind of to the left, like a decorative table you put your keys on or whatever. And that was broken. So there was an attack in the foyer and they like made their way through the hall over this baby gate where Greg then died. And it only makes sense to me if Greg was trying to get out that back door and climbed over the, like jumped over the gate himself and didn't make it but that doesn't really fit with the timing of them thinking he was incapacitated very quickly into the attack but if greg was attacked and then he runs i would imagine he'd be yelling for his brother to help him but that doesn't make sense because greg would have heard his brother in trouble and he's reporting he heard nothing right because the phone call would have happened already the 309 phone call Correct. Would have happened. And then there was a 315 phone call from the girlfriend or best friend or ex-girlfriend or whatever that, and he heard the roughhousing. So if he's hearing roughhousing, surely he would hear his brother yelling, help. I I also, I have a problem with that as well. Because Greg would have known that Zach was home. So if he's being attacked, he wouldn't just be running. He'd be yelling for Zach. Right. And here's, here's something that's really interesting to me. The door was locked because Zach left Greg the key in the storm door. So nobody could have actually been in the house waiting for him unless they unlocked the door, let themselves in, knowing that the key would be there. Yes. They let themselves in and then they waited. It would make more sense if it was a third person that they would have followed Zach in behind him. Maybe bushes hiding and jumped into the door with him. Yes. But again... There are other kids outside and nobody saw that. No, no. So when you start piling all this evidence together, it doesn't look good for Zach. During the trial, the defence wanted to make a lot of this evidence inadmissible. They argued that the aluminol wasn't used correctly and the footprints weren't measured to see if they in fact matched that of Zach's. They argued that Zach's sweatshirt, his socks and the bloodied towel that was used to clean his hands were placed together in the same bag, possibly contaminating the blood pattern on these items. They argued that none of this evidence should have been removed from the crime scene because there wasn't a warrant. But the fact being, the police did their job at the crime scene and like it or not, they were in full rights to collect and use the evidence taken at the house. From what I understand, it was 
what was taken at the hospital without a warrant came into question. Yeah, the waters do become muddy when you look at that. Um, but the court did allow all this evidence at trial, despite motions being filed. Zach's lawyer does retract the motion to have the socks inadmissible because he believes that the socks could help Zach's case. And I also, another thing that wasn't allowed in on Zach's side was he was not allowed to present relationship witnesses to testify about how close he was to his brother. He had like vague character witnesses saying he's never been in trouble, he's a good kid, but no one there to point out that there was no animosity that anyone else could see between the brothers, that they were close, that they did things for each other, they did things together that wasn't allowed in, which seems odd to me because that would be the defense of the motive. I mean, the I feel like the motive's the big, huge question mark here if Zach did it. And he wasn't allowed to present information that would contradict any motive that the prosecution could put forth. I think that's the thing that I always come back to is that the relationship between the brothers was great and that versus the brutality of the crime. I mean, these boys were best friends. They... They had witness come, witnesses come forward afterwards backing this up. And, look, as, and as, as I said at the top of the episode, it was Zach's idea to make Greg that soccer goal because he knew Greg loved soccer. They loved each other. And I struggled to get my head around that when the crime was just so brutal. Exactly. But then again, if you do a quick Google search on brothers killing brothers, there really doesn't need to be a motive. Like I read a, a brother killed his brother because he beat him in a video game or another one killed his brother because he bought the wrong flavor of chips home brother kill brother goes back to the very beginning of the bible i mean this isn't a foreign concept this isn't a new concept i did read in the case notes that one of greg's classmates had told him that greg was scared of zach and apparently zach had been selling marijuana and got aggressive when he smoked it Um, And Zach had allegedly told Greg that he was going to get him if Greg ever told his parents or the police. But Zach had his urine, blood and hair tested after he was arrested. And that came back clear of any type of drugs. So I just take those claims at face value. That sounds more like neighborhood gossip kind of stuff. Because a hair follicle test would have let you know if he smoked marijuana any time recently at all. Correct. I don't put a lot into that but I also know my kids interact differently with each other when I'm not around than when I'm around you know when there's no accountable adult so even though parents and teachers didn't see animosity between the brothers doesn't mean that it entirely wasn't there or that it or that it didn't flare up well they were 13 and 15 there's going to be sibling rivalry there's going to be times where for no reason they're not going to get along like, I noticed that with my kids who are six and four, they'll be best friends one moment and then a second later they're screaming at each other over the silliest little thing. My older boys are 17, almost 15, and 12 and a half. And yeah, they're in the kitchen having a rap battle of Hamilton one minute and the next minute <laughs> they're fighting over Xbox controllers. I mean, it really, it really does come and go, which is... Honestly, having boys this age did make this story a little a little bit much for me to research. I can't even imagine the parents. Oh, it would have been so hard. Okay, so the defense attorney changes his mind and decides that he wants the socks added into evidence as he believes that this is the thing that proves Zach's innocence. Zach's attorney says 
that look just let's just say that the luminol evidence is convincing and then if you hold up the sock it doesn't match with what you see with the luminol because the luminol evidence shows that the whole foot and if you look at the socks the bottoms aren't completely covered with blood that most of the blood is on the front of the sock as almost if Zach was walking on his toes there is dirt on the bottom and there are blood droplets on the top of the socks the defence attorney explains the blood on the top away as Zach having bloody hands from moving Zach's body and he thinks that Zach was hysterical and shaking and that this blood was dripping off his hands onto his socks. Whenever you're in a bloody crime scene and you're moving around, you're going to have the risk. I mean, they had to get the blood off of his hands in the ambulance. That definitely makes sense to me on the blood on the top of the socks. The lack of blood on the bottom is kind of weird to me in general. If he walked through this crime scene, so he would have come down the stairs to the foyer, kind of did that little turn to go to the laundry room. He would have moved his brother. I mean, walking on his tiptoes actually makes sense. Whenever I'm walking through a mess or a puddle or whatever, I always walk on my tiptoes. Yeah. But that I would, I just, I will say a hundred times over, the lack of blood and blood transfer, no matter who did this murder, is just, my brain can't wrap, like, I would expect there just to be more blood moved around in general. Exactly. And, I mean, by introducing that argument into evidence, you could also have the prosecution coming forward and saying, well, hang on, the reason the blood is on the socks was because Zach was attacking Greg. The lack of blood on Zach was kind of interesting because obviously he didn't take a shower and blow dry his hair and put his bloody sweatshirt back on and then call 911. I mean, none of that happened. And you would think any attacker, though, would have been covered with blood. And there's, like I said, not that much blood transfer. I guess maybe if the attack, again, you know me with the graphic stuff, I hate picturing it, but if it was from behind, like the person grabbed him from behind, so it would have been someone larger than him, Maybe there really wasn't that much blood that got on the attacker. Greg's blood pressure would have dropped pretty quickly after the initial attack, and so the rest of the attack may not have produced that much spray. So what you're saying is Greg's walked in the door, then turned back around to lock the door behind him, and someone's just jumped out. Maybe he just, I mean, just slammed the door and didn't even turn around, and someone just grabbed him like in a bear hug from behind and started stabbing him where their body is completely... Okay. So Greg's body is blocking them and they're reaching around. That's okay. that's one scenario that could have happened that would maybe explain why there's not that much blood on the front of anybody or nobody's dripping blood through the house. So let's just say that Zach didn't do it, that he was in fact upstairs asleep. He hears a struggle downstairs and goes and finds Greg. He moves Greg's body to perform the CPR and that's how he got blood on him because he couldn't possibly be the killer because he doesn't have enough blood on him. The problem I have with that is it's the middle of the afternoon. As you said earlier, Charlie, there are kids walking home from school everywhere. This assailant is apparently shoeless and covered in blood, yet he manages to leave the house without dripping blood everywhere, without leaving blood on the door handles, and no one sees this blood-soaked shoeless person casually leaving the house. That just doesn't add up to me. That doesn't make sense to me either and I would really really like there to be some evidence that there was a third person there but it's really amazing that there is absolutely no evidence that there was a third person there one thing that is odd to me about the luminol footprints 
like you said, it's there's a good chance it's from the pool chemicals because there wasn't time to clean the scene. So if there were bloody footprints, you wouldn't need luminol to see them. You would just be able to see them. So the footprints are more likely from the pool chemicals of whoever went out. But then I guess that doesn't make sense of them leaving the scene. I guess I'm not clear on what bloody footprints they could see with their eyes and which ones they needed luminol for. That's a good point. I never thought of it that way before, that of course there's going to be pool chemical footprints everywhere because they're going to be at the hot tub. So that doesn't necessarily mean it was Zach or Greg. It could have been Ron or Sue or a friend. The fact that they weren't measured to see if they fit Zach's foot, we, we just don't know. I don't know. The footprints, because of the luminol and the blood, like the door, like you said, the door frame and the handle, none of that had blood on it going out of the house. I almost have to, my brain almost wants to throw this away just because I can't make sense of it. It yeah. could go either way. It just seems that there was, it just seems there was no blood except for in the, fo- I assume in the foyer and in the laundry. Mm-hmm. That this this mystery assailant just went poof and disappeared into thin air. It's just it's very odd. Okay, so we're saying Zach is innocent. Well, then then who? It's been put forth that there may have, it may have been a robbery gone wrong, that someone broke into the house to steal some stuff, but it was such a brutal attack. If you're robbing a house, you don't nearly decapitate someone, especially a thirteen year old who wouldn't have been a huge threat to you. Oh, exactly. Someone attacked Greg to kill him. There's just no other way to say it. It was personal. If if someone was there to rob the house, it got caught off guard by Greg coming home. They're not going to going to so viciously attack Greg. So to me, it points to someone that Greg knew. I agree with that. I can't figure out the motive for why Zach did it, but then I can't figure out who else it could have been either. That's where I'm kind of falling on both ends of that. What's keeping me from feeling really strongly one way or the other. I mean, it could have been a school friend of Greg's that may, he may have had a, had a problem with, maybe a bully that had taken a strong dislike to Greg, but there's been no mention of this by the family or Greg's friends. So, I mean, I guess it is a possibility, however unlikely a possibility it is. It's a very vicious attack that If it was a school bully, you would think there would be some record of them having been in fights before, him being stalked or harassed or followed. A bully doesn't go from kind of picking on you a little bit to brutally killing you in your own house. And again, if Zach and Greg were so close, Greg would have confided, even if he didn't tell his parents, he would have confided in Zach at some stage that he was having a problem with a kid at school. Right, and... None of, and no one, like you said, I mean, he had a friend, his friend Aaron called them, called him almost every day. She didn't say anything about, about this. Another problem I have is Aaron says that when she called the first time, someone picked up the downstairs phone and then disconnected the phone without saying anything. If we're assuming that this was the robber slash killer, why would this person even bother answering the phone? They would probably assume nobody else was home at the time. So, I mean, you would pick it up and hang it up if you didn't want it to wake the person upstairs. But obviously, why would a robber slash killer know that there was somebody asleep upstairs? That's right, correct. So, yeah, that doesn't make sense. 
Another theory that I've seen around is that there was a serial killer who was active in the area at this time. Adam Leroy Lane, who was also known as the Highway Killer, frequented this area around this time. He was also convicted of carrying out a similar crime. On June 30, 2007, Lane broke into a house in Massachusetts and attacked a 15-year-old girl with a knife. In this case, though, it was night and the girl's parents thankfully woke up hearing the struggle and subdued Lane until the police got there and arrested him. I would, with a serial killer theory, I just don't understand why the serial killer wouldn't have his own gloves. And I I know it's probably not definitive that the gloves came from the house, but they were soccer gloves and they had soccer players in the house. But why would a third person not just take the gloves and knife with them or throw it in the bushes? Why would they bury it? Why would they take the time in the broad daylight to go in a backyard to bury it? And with the with the pen knife, it wasn't like it was, again, if we're looking at the serial killer, it wasn't like it was a knife that the attacker most likely brought in with them. The pen knife was something that there were other pen knives found in the house. There was one in Zach's room. It wasn't like it was brought in most likely from the outside. It was something that would have been in the house already. Not that I, again, I don't kill people as an axe murderer. I also don't stab people to death. (laughs) However, if I would, I would bring a knife with me. I would get one from the kitchen. I certainly wouldn't pick up this flimsy knife as, you know, someone who's really planning this attack. So it seems like an odd choice and the pen knife was a promotional thing so it has the name of a business on it and it is like an automotive business which the father was involved with contracts with automotive businesses from a previous job so i just think a knife is an odd promote when we set up our zazzle account and start selling merchandise we're not selling pen knives that seems like an odd thing to hand out no don't even ask anyone (laughs) Zach had other ones in kind of a collection of them. Yes, he collected them. Which is an odd collection to have anyway, but... For that to be the murder weapon, it would be quite the coincidence if it didn't come from his collection. So, as we know, Zach was found guilty for the murder of his brother Greg. You can only imagine the family has been through so much at this stage. They've lost their youngest son in the most horrific way possible. And now their eldest son has been convicted for the murder. So look, their, fa- their family has basically been wiped out. Look, these are their only children. This was their everything and now it's gone. Now, when Greg died, Zach was 15 years, but he actually didn't go to trial until he was 20 in 2003. The trial was delayed numerous times because of the admissibility of the evidence. So going into trial, he wouldn't have looked like the kid he was when the crime occurred. I often wonder in these cases, does this affect the mindset of the jury? I think that looking at a 20-year-old man versus a 15-year-old kid really does change our perception of culpability, of ability to form reason, and also just, I'm sure... Between the ages of 15 and 20, most boys will grow three inches, gain probably 20, 25 pounds. So he's probably also appeared quite a bit bigger than he really had been at the time of the crime. Oh, definitely. He may have had some facial hair. He would have looked like a grown man versus, you know, a mid-teen boy. 
And for the, with this life sentence, he had been given the option to plead out. I saw that. He would be out of jail already. And I really dislike this portion of our justice system because it doesn't really feel like justice. If using your right to defend yourself in, yourself in court would give you a significantly harsher sentence, that's not justice. If he was safe enough to release after a few years under the plea deal, he's still just as safe to release after a trial. It's punitive, as though we're, we're punishing people for exercising their right to take their case to trial and to be heard in a court. And I have really, I really dislike that. I, you know, shaving off a few years for a plea deal, I get the negotiation. But the difference between five years and a life sentence is huge. It's everything. I have very strong opinions on the sentencing of Zach, even if I don't necessarily feel strongly about his innocence. And he does have hope now. So a few years ago, the Supreme Court of the United States, which is our highest court for those outside our country, they ruled that it was unconstitutional to give juveniles mandatory life sentences without parole. And that's what Zach had. He was convicted of first-degree murder. The mandatory mandatory penalty was life without parole. In January of this year, because certain states, including the state Zach is in, did not want to make it retroactive. However, in January of this year, it was decided, 6-3 to three on the Supreme Court, that this is retroactive, and it applies to Zach, and he needs to be resentenced. So he may still get a life sentence if the prosecutor can convince them that that's what he deserves. However, he has a lack of violence before and since the crime, and that should go in his favor. So there is a chance that his life sentence will become life with the possibility of parole or even lower. However, parole often depends on remorse. You don't automatically get parole. You have to have it approved. And if you're maintaining your innocence, you can't be remorseful for a crime you're saying you didn't commit. So basically, if you're innocent, you still have to say you're guilty if you want a chance to get out of jail. He's wrote a couple of letters, and you can see all this on his website, zachwhitman.com. In all the letters, he doesn't. He keeps on saying, "I'm innocent. I didn't do this." He's very staunch in that he is innocent of this crime. And if you watch the documentary on his parents, they still believe that he's innocent and he didn't do it. So his chances of getting parole, as you said, is quite slim, based on that. Again, in the documentary. He's a model prisoner. He isn't getting into any trouble. Yeah, one of the things with this, this case for the Supreme Court, so someone took it to Supreme Court saying life sentences doesn't allow for rehabilitation for juveniles. And so the Supreme Court said, okay, you're right. This is how we decide. And then the reason it went back to find out if it was retroactive is there were multiple states that were saying, no, you can't make us, we're going to have to re-sentence all of these people. And Pennsylvania has a large number of juveniles with mandatory life sentences that they're going to have to re-sentence all of them. Well, Louisiana basically made the argument, like, we, you really expect us to re-sentence all these people? That's a huge burden. 
And the Supreme Court literally said, well, you could just parole them if you want. <laughs> you don't have to resentence them. Just give them automatic parole and then just resentence the ones you really feel should get the life sentence without parole. It may, I mean, with 200 plus people in one county in Pennsylvania who are eligible for resentencing, it's going to, it's not going to be overnight. It's going to take a while. And look, let's just say that Zach did do it. There's no evidence that he would ever offend again. If he was some big sociopath, there would have been some evidence up to the point he was 15 and since then in jail. Especially since then. Jail's not a non-violent place to be. It's a violent culture in jail. So if someone was predisposed to violence, it would absolutely come out in jail. Exactly. So even if he did have some snap big fight with Greg and attacked him, it's very unlikely that he would he would commit further crimes like that, in my view. So I think he would be a good candidate for parole, but, you know, if he maintains his innocence, that's just very unlikely, which seems which seems like a catch-22. You can't, you can't be innocent and get out of jail, so we only let guilty people out of jail? I mean, it really makes no sense, but it is what it is. So why don't we finish with what we think went on here? What do you think the most likely scenario was, Charlie? Oh, you're killing me. Um, (laughs) There's just no evidence that someone else was there. I can't figure out why Zach would lie in wait. I mean, assuming he's faking an illness to stay home, would lie in wait and jump out and kill his brother and struggle down the hallway. They both get over the gate. He kills him there, and then he calls 911. I think his reaction, a lot of people like to look at people's reactions, but someone who impulsively or even planned on killing someone else may honestly flip out and panic and get very upset when they actually do it. You you know, just getting upset doesn't make me think he didn't do it. It makes me think he's not a psychopath, but I don't know. I, I want there to be a third person. I just do. I really don't want it to be two brothers and it just, it's heartbreaking. But I also, I'm just stuck on a motive for Zach and the lack of someone else being there. So I don't, I don't know. That's a long way to say, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you hear the argument that Zach didn't have time to commit the crime and that he didn't have time to attack Greg and then bury the evidence. But the facts does show that someone did have the time the truth is the crime happened completely within seven minutes. That's just the facts. Exactly. I mean, you could extend the time a few more minutes and say that the killer did have time to bury the knife in the glove after the 911 call. Yeah, it gives them about like five to ten more minutes or so. Yeah, but I mean, if the killer had time to do that, well, then so did Zach. Right. The, we don't know what he was doing when he said he was checking on his brother and exactly. moving the body and stuff. He may not have been anywhere near his brother at that point. And if the killer did come back into the house, then why didn't Zach see them? Zach says he doesn't see anyone. I mean, the, the arguments could go either way here. The problem I have is that, as you said, there is zero evidence of a third party. And that is my problem with the whole case here. To me, there just isn't enough evidence to prove there is a third party here that would help Zach's case. It just all looks really bad for Zach. I agree. It looks, I mean, the forensic and all the evidence is just kind of hit or miss for Zach. 
and against him. It's a very circumstantial case in the fact that there are only two people we can prove were there, and one of them was murdered. So that leaves the other one to be the murderer. Yeah. And I do believe that Zach did love his brother. It's obvious that the parents adore Zach. Just watch the documentary. They are heartbroken. They visit him all the time. It's really sad. But I just can't figure out how this could have went down any other way. I agree. I can't. And trust me, I've tried to come up with another scenario that would have their some murderer escaped the situation. And I just, I can't. I can't come up with anything else. Yeah, sorry, everyone. We did not want it to end that way. And actually, as we were researching it, I had heard so much about Zach and you know, possibly innocent and had the same attorney, Christina Gutierrez, as Adnan, which she didn't make it very long in their trial. She didn't even make it to the trial because by the time this actually went to trial, she was already dead, wasn't she? I think so. And I wasn't aware of that. I thought she had gotten further through than what she actually did. That was the impression I got because she got to where she was hiring experts or supposedly and collecting money from the family. But that was apparently all fairly early on. She had worked to try to get some things excluded that his actual trial attorney went ahead and had in. So, yes, she misused their funds and they did collect money from the misused funds account that the Bar Association or the state has. And they are part of why she ended up getting disbarred. Yes. But she didn't really make it very far into the trial, let alone like Adnan, where she was in one one trial that was a mistrial and then the next trial. She didn't make it very far in the Whitman case before she was no longer their attorney. And by the time it went to trial, by the time most of this happened and she was in the hospital, her son said within the the last year of her life he did she didn't even recognize him and then she died and so she really she wasn't anywhere near this case nearly as much as it sounded from the impression i got from serial which was my own assumptions yes mine too definitely we'll finish up there today so where can people find us charlie We are on Facebook. Just look for Insight. We read and respond to every comment on the comments and also in our inbox. We are on Twitter at InsightfulPod. And we are on Instagram. Yes, at InsightPod. We have the website, which we post all the episodes on and links to some of the research we have done for this case. Just visit www.insightpod.com. We have a Patreon page. If you can, please donate. We have some great mini episodes coming up for our Patreon sponsors, as well as some other very cool rewards. And email? Email. Yes, insightfulpod at gmail.com. And also for anyone who has been listening on our Libsyn account, our Libsyn account is now insightpod.libsyn.com before it was insightpodcast. So if you just want to go ahead and update that to insightpod.libson.com, but you could just go to our website and listen. And we'll also post a link on the Facebook page as well. Yes, we're trying our best to update our links everywhere since we've had to migrate the feed over. But everything should be running smooth from here on through. That's the hope. (laughs) So we'll see everyone in two weeks. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye.